Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. If you could have the magical power to read people, what they were thinking and feeling, would you want that ability? I imagine it'd be a mixed blessing. There'd be times when we'd really want to be able to read those people. And there may be times when ignorance is bliss. Regardless, it is important to improve our skills at following cues, reading nonverbal behavioral patterns, and finding relevant ways to factor in context to better understand people, as you'll soon hear. My guest, Blake Eastman, describes three focal points of his own life as being poker, psychology, and nonverbal behavior. He has taught at the college level, he has played poker professionally, and he's coached professional poker players on how to read people to increase the likelihood of winning. I'm certain you will find him and his subject as fascinating as I did. So listen in as Blake shares his expertise with me on reading people. Blake Eastman, welcome to Super Psyched. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, dude, for sure. And you are exactly as advertised. Such an interesting story you've got. I was wondering if before we get into some of the work and some of the insights you have for my listeners and how they'll be able to really capitalize on some of your learning, I'm wondering if you just give a little bit of your backstory before we get into what you know. Yeah, but so brief background. Sort of my life has been about three things, really, like psychology, poker, and nonverbal behavior. I was a psychology professor at the City University of New York for seven years. My background was in forensic psychology with an emphasis on psychological test construction. And I did things like psychopathy assessment. School was easy because it was just so, so damn cool. Oh, dude, that's awesome. It was very interesting. And while going through school, I saw a movie called Rounders and got very interested in poker. So I became, I was playing sort of two lives, like psychology during the day and poker at night was <laughs> most of my like graduate school education. And then I founded two companies. One was called Nonverbal Group, which is sort of what I'm here to talk to you about today. We're a behavioral research company that does large-scale studies on human behavior and a lot of coaching and working with teams. And we do a lot of stuff. As like an entrepreneur, I've had a sort of like a tapas lifestyle that's where, a way of describing you know, I just kind of, somebody's like, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And I just, I've done a wide range of things, but I'm probably most known for a project called Beyond Tells, which was the largest behavioral study ever conducted on poker players. So we did this large scale study where we had, we did three separate studies, but we had players come in, recorded them from multiple angles, and then spent years breaking down all their physical movement and built a program called Beyond Tells. And I sort of, over the past couple of years work with the world's best poker players on breaking down the behavior of the other world's best poker players. So like during the main event, I'm like processing information and I obviously play poker myself. But yeah, so it's a little uh, bit of the what background. A truly rich soundbite. I mean, everything from college professor during the day, poker player at night, the toughest lifestyle. And you know, it's funny, a little life hack my wife and I have developed is that when we go to a restaurant, sometimes for the first time, we will just order a ton of appetizers mm. just to get to know the range and the scope of the restaurant. 
before we dig into a main course because the tapas can be really, even though it's a Spanish idea, the appetizers here just give you a broad spectrum. And to that point, I would only imagine that the tapas, so to speak, these little areas that you've touched on serve as hyperlinks for you to draw on in unexpected ways as you're going deeper into a particular thing. I've noticed that being able to speak Japanese has informed my capacity as a psychologist as well as knowing its culture and my love of certain geeking out to animals has helped me with humans. Imagine that just before we even get into the tells and being able to read people's body language and disabusing people of some of perhaps the research that's out that we will get into. I'm wondering how having a broad spectrum approach, the tapas approach, has helped you as you specialize. I am a big fan of developing range and not specializing. I think that some of the greatest insights are when there are these cross multidisciplinary approaches towards things. So like even the books that I read are quite diverse. I'll go into random topics. I think there is almost a danger in focusing too much on a specific area. And some of my best insights have come from things that I never would have thought were my best insights. You know what I mean? So it's totally. like, it's really it's really important to have that range. There's a good book called Range that I love that book. Yeah, it was really, really, really good. And I thought it did anybody who's David Epstein, I strongly right? recommend it. Yes, Epstein. So good. It, and he talks even so about good. late bloomers, which is really kind of a just a very yeah. buffeting thing for my listeners to know about is that we're just never too late to start. And there's something about this Leonardo to, I'm gonna use your tapas idea is just kind of Further corroborating one of the greatest minds of all time, Leonardo da Vinci really was a tapas mind. Mm. You know, he pulled from so many areas as he would get into a thing and it just improved his ability to do that thing. So let's get into poker, tells, nonverbal communication. You blew my mind by saying that frequently cited idea that 93% of our communication is nonverbal. And you're saying, actually, it's the opposite. I'm wondering what is true about nonverbal communication and what are some myths? Oh, yeah, it's great. So first myth is that 93% of communication <laughs> is not verbal. It's interesting how that's become one of these things. If you're listening, if you ever process some sort of information in the social sciences or when it's about human behavior and it's specific, it's almost always not correct, right? Like think about it. 93% of communication is not like, how could you possibly even arrive at that number? And how is that universal? So that should just be for the critical thinkers out there, just like a warning sign of something's wrong. But yeah, it was a study that was done that was been misrepresented and became part of the cultural zeitgeist. And then all of a sudden, everybody says this is a, you know, 93% of communication is nonverbal. The reality is you can have a full conversation and they have no nonverbal aspect to it. But usually when people talk about nonverbal, it does extend to voice. So it is about aspects of vocal quality. It really is everything except for the actual raw content of what is being said. And it's not like we ignore that. We deal with that as well, right? It's just the communication aspect. I think while there are a lot of things to say, the most important thing is to understand that you are this prediction-making machine. And people go through life using behavioral signals to make predictions about other and connect with people and love them and collaborate and so on and so forth. And I think the most important thing to understand is that you are a very biased machine in the sense that your worldview, the way that you've gone through life, it shapes how you perceive the world. So for example, 
one of the things I'm always combating is like bad body language advice. If you read somewhere that someone, when they lie, they scratch their nose or something silly like that. It creates a lens now so that if you meet someone and you see somebody scratch their nose, you're like, oh my God, they're lying to me because it comes from that perspective. And we have all of these mechanisms that really alter the way we see people and racism and prejudice and all these different things. And I think instead of trying to learn what is what when it comes to reading behavior, it's really important to understand first your lens and how you actually perceive the world because you will perceive the world in alignment with that lens. There's a lot of like classic studies that will demonstrate this, but you know, if somebody's really anxious, they're going to see things that support more anxiety versus something else. So a lot of what we teach is about noticing when these perception lens come up and building tools to reduce them. What you're describing is so many of our projections and biases are really dictated by the emotional state we're in at the time, perhaps also our cultural reference points. Mm-hmm. I remember misreading something that my son gave me a look a long time ago and I got mad and the look was totally misinterpreted by me in spite of the fact that I knew him so well. And to this day, I still feel bad about that moment. And he's a fantastic boy. And, you know, I just wish I could go back in time and maybe ask rather than project and use my own emotional state of the biases that informed my interpretation of that face. But for sure, if you go to the various continents, you'll see that different facial presentations mean different things. And not looking at somebody can be actually a sign of respect and looking at somebody too much can actually be intimidating in certain cultures. Mm -hmm. So just knowing how to use that. I also think though about that classic idea, I'm going to do it a little differently, but the, if we were to receive a text that said, I didn't take the chocolate, it could be, I didn't take the chocolate. And it's like, I didn't take the chocolate. I ate the chocolate or I didn't take it. Somebody else ate it. I didn't take it or I didn't take the chocolate, meaning I took something else, but not the chocolate. So many things are lost in text. Mm because we can't really hear the nonverbal components of the transcript. And I'm just wondering, well, what about that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, I believe everybody has the responsibility to make sure that their message is communicated in the way that they want it to be communicated. So like that is on you. So for example, if you're about to text message somebody, and you know that there's some nuance to this, it might not be good for a text message. It might be good for a phone call or it might be good or you might have to counterbalance it with some exclamations or smiley faces or gifts or so on and so forth. And I think when people communicate, they don't often understand or think about the potential impact of that communication. And sometimes with my clients, like I'll sit there and write out, all right, let's go over how this could be perceived. And you model it out and there's so many different ways that it could be perceived. And I think what needs to be put in is more context. I think we're living in a culture where we want more context surrounding our communication so we can get on the same page. So like with text messages, I mean, there's so many things. So I, this is pretty interesting. So let's say we had this podcast, right? I mean, I already know what your answer is going to be with that (laughs) that conversation, but we have this podcast and then you send me, Hey Blake, podcast was great. You would love to catch up in dinner when we're in California or whatever you say. Right. And then I answer, okay. And nothing, (laughs) Uh, right? Like you are a person uh, that I'm pretty sure is not going to like that. Right. Because you're saying like, all right, like, what do you, I just sent all of this and you just responded. (laughs) Okay. So we call you a, a contextual and a contextual is somebody that will, when given one word responses, will create context. 
reality, all I did was say, okay, we add context that we add meaning to that where there's the other side of the coin is literals. The people listening to this right now, they'll be like, what's wrong with that? He just responded. Okay. Totally. And what's so fascinating is I work with teams where 60% of them are contextuals and 60% and 40 is literals. So then they start communicating and there's these back and forth problems when in reality, and the easiest way to deal with this is just get everybody to understand who's a contextual and who's a literal. And then there's like variations. There's like over contextualization. You find somebody with a lot of anxiety, they'll probably over contextualize. Like, oh my God. Extrapolate all kinds of info when it's not there. When it's not even there. And then there's some people that are really good at pattern formation and picking up on trends. And I think something's off and they might be right. Right. So (laughs) it's this kind of world of navigating that world becomes, it's fascinating. Humans are, you know, we're so complex and so simple at the same time. It's like very, very, very weird. Oh, so let's go into it. One of the pieces of data, and perhaps you would corroborate or negate it, was that when we think we know somebody, even who we know super intimately, without the verbal corroboration, we have about a 40% chance of actually getting it right. I think I know what my wife is thinking. I know her really well for 20 years. And I'm wrong at least 60% of the time. I'm wondering, like, what have you learned about tells? What are legit tells? How do we even like you've been supremely successful at poker playing in high stakes game at a young age with really serious, perhaps even at times some shark like players. And yet you had to keep your cool, keep your heart rate probably at a good and somehow read what's going on. How do you read what's real? A lot to unpack. So first of all, I mean, the interesting thing I want to make clear is when I was playing poker full-time and professionally, not a single part of it was to deal with behavior. So I was one of the people back then that had read some poker body language books and was like, this stuff sounds like nonsense. Like I was really focused on the theory and the sort of approach that, you know, you just, you're using information to yield the decision and I wasn't paying attention to behavior. But then when we did the study, things changed. So, okay. The answer really is you had a couple questions. So I'm going to deal with a couple of them. First, the notion of poker tells is we call our product beyond tells because the notion of poker tells is fundamentally like incorrect in the sense that players do certain things when they're strong versus when they're weak. And what a lot of people that don't understand the nuances of poker, poker is an infinitely complex game within itself. So when really high level players are playing, it's not like they're bluffing or they're not bluffing. Like it's way more nuanced. It's a lot of it is perception. So for example, you could be in a hand where you're betting in a big spot that you think you're behind. You think you're going to lose, but you're actually ahead. And that can produce arousal. So one of the things with poker is how society thinks about poker is usually from emotion and arousal. The big moment where the player bets a million dollars into the pod, like the movies and so on and so forth. That's not where all the tells are. And the reason why is arousal is really difficult to actually understand. So the things that people say like, oh, you know, that player's holding his breath or that player's breathing really quickly. You can't reverse engineer what that actually means. Right. And the reason why is everybody has different methods for dealing with arousal. So for example, for me, during the like, two big tournaments, the WSP main event and a 5K6 Max. I had a deep run in both. I was wearing a special device called Empatica E4, which is like a FDA clear device that measures 
GSR and heart rate and all these things. And what I found... like a lie detector on your body. Yeah, it's kind of like a polygraph. So we found these three states, three levels of arousal. One was very high and two were quite similar. And what I found, the spots were when I was bluffing and I had a very strong hand. So when I was bluffing and I knew I was going to win, the arousal patterns were the same. But when I was in situation or spots where... I was ahead, but potentially get drawn out on. So like I was ahead, but people could potentially get better cards. My arousal was the highest. And the reason why is because I'm a little bit more of a control freak. And in that moment, I feel like I'm giving up control. So my arousal is higher. If you were to follow me from like a cultural arousal basis, you would think the spots where I'm the most nervous that I have bad cards. I didn't. I had very good cards. I probably had the best cards, but I was afraid of giving up that edge. So like that's a very nuanced thing. It's not so specific. So what we actually found was it wasn't the signs of arousal that were the signs for tells. It was actually the mechanism a person utilized to reduce arousal. So we call them concealment strategies. So like a player and really that plays poker isn't going like, oh my God, this player, like they're not thinking. They've been playing poker for years. But what they don't realize is while they're still there's different variations in their stillness. So when players like there's clips online of like a player and like, oh, stone cold player. It's like there's variations in stone cold stillness. So you'll see that sometimes they never blink. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they slightly move. Sometimes they don't. And over time, we're able to categorize this and reverse engineer it, not in every players, but in most or in some and be able to find like, all right, they're 86 percentage time that they're doing these behaviors. They're likely to do this. So it's way more nuanced than people think. And so these behaviors are so personal and really specific to the person that five Mm -hmm. players could present with the same presentation and have very different hands and have very different reactions to those hands. And so it would be very hard for the outsider to extrapolate what's actually going on. So and one of the things I want to let the listener know, listener, poker has implications to all of life. So this isn't just in the context of the poker room. This is everywhere. So how can we read people if they are so impossible to read? Yeah, so reading people is not about look for these smiles or look for these that. It really is about understanding. So first, every one of you listening right now has a certain level of what I'll call behavioral awareness, which is not making meaning out of behavior, but just noticing it. So for example, some people in a conversation with another person won't even notice certain things. So you need to increase behavioral awareness first before you can get into anything else. And sometimes they don't notice because they don't want to notice, they're lazy, there's a bunch of different reasons why. And then once you get to the level of notice, reading behavior is not hard. It's a pretty easy thing. It's reading context is a lot more challenging. So really what's happening is when you have a conversation with someone, I want you to imagine that there's these rings, these invisible rings of context that are existing. So right now, like when we are having this podcast, there's a bunch of invisible rings of cultural norms of how you should behave on a podcast. So for example, if right now, all of a sudden, I just walked out and, <laughs> and then just came back. I was like, oh, so sorry. I had to go to the bathroom without telling you. Totally. You'd be, you be like, what the hell did you just do? Like, why did you 100%. just leave? There's all these norms and they're not written down, but they're understood. And really what you're doing when you're reading behavior at a high level is you're not reading behavior. You're reading reactions that are embedded in all of these norms. 
And that's what it is to like really read behavior. So for example, like all of a sudden me, you and three other people are having a conversation and someone makes like a slightly offensive joke. Two people are slightly offended. Three people aren't. There's things inside of that that you see, but without the context, you really miss it. So a lot of people make these attribution errors or they see someone and they're like, oh, I know that person. Like you don't know anything because you don't understand the cultural norms. What's so fascinating is like when people ask me, like people will sometimes get like nervous or intimidated when they know what I do and when I see them. And it's like, if somebody's just being themselves, there's absolutely nothing for me to say. I'm like, that's a self-expressed person enjoying themselves. But if someone wants to be perceived as confident and isn't, it's so easy to see because it's easy to see incongruence. And humans are really, really good at spotting incongruent behavior. And a lot of the work I do is about getting people to be congruent and identifying the sort of the polarization of their incongruence. So for example, like a leader that wants to lead with empathy and wants their team have a compassionate and collaborative team, but they don't move their face at all during meetings. They're stoic. They're reading a text. Exactly. They're reading a text. And like the person... Like one I of my care favorite very clients. deeply about what you're exactly. feeling right now. Yeah, it's like <laughs> robot kind of people. And like <laughs> one of my clients that I work with that was one of the most compassionate and warm people I know, you know, we sort of look at the origin of his lack of facial displays. And he's like, it, during a conversation with him, he's like, it can't be this. I was asking him about his past. And when he was 12 years old, he had this experience where he went to work with his dad and he laughed when he was in there. He smiled and his dad said, men don't smile at work. And in that moment, he just made it mean that like, oh, I shouldn't smile at work and didn't even realize that moment had a profound impact on his behavior. Mm. And then years later, he's a stern boss that is not stern at all, but everybody's perceiving him to be stern. As I'm listening to you, one of the things I'm extrapolating is, and I'm going back to the top of us as a callback, as well as what you're saying right now, it's as if each of these behaviors is a tapa. It's a taste of who they are, but it's not a definition of who they are, as well as the need to actually sit and track and get to know this person culturally. Like, what is this person? And then over time, we can begin to address like, okay, this is an algorithm over time. But in and of itself, one specific thing is not meaningful necessarily. Perception is an algorithm. It's like pretty obvious. And also, there's this good book, new book, just came out last week. It's called The Entangled Brain, I think. There's all this like reductionist stuff to the brain of like, we like to separate the brain into like emotion and cognition. And the reality is this is such this amazing, incredible prediction, energy conserving machine that governs a lot in our life. And it's not obsessed with necessarily being right. It's obsessed with like saving energy. And in the process totally. of saving energy, we make a lot of errors about people. And the joke is the easiest thing to do is just ask the person. So For sure. like I always say that like reading behavior is the analogy is a lot of like body language consultants will treat it like a laser where I say I treat it more like a flashlight. I don't necessarily know. So let me get, I'll tell you a good story. So I used to teach this class called Deception Detected. And the the class, people used to not like it because the whole class was about how it's so hard to actually predict if someone's lying or not. For sure. But I had this corporate client that was like, listen, could you do a fun night? So we had experimented with polygraphs and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, let's do like a polygraph night for your clients. So their clients came in 
And we had a bunch of people get hooked up to a polygraph. We did like shots. If you lied, you took a shot. I was like completely nothing you'd find anywhere. <laughs> strange else. drinking game. I, I was younger in those days. It was about 10 or 12 years ago. So we were doing it and this one woman gets up and she's sitting there and somebody asks like, have you ever slept with anybody that you've worked with before? And she goes, no. And I go, lie. And everybody starts laughing. Oh, And then like three or four questions later, someone says, have you ever slept with somebody at this company? And she goes, no. And I go, true. I go, you're right. You're not lying. And everybody's like, oh, all right. So then everybody's getting, to, <laughs> everybody's getting to leave and she's walking out. And I say, come here for a second. And she comes here and I go, not only did you sleep with somebody at your company, he was standing three feet in front of me. Oh and no. She, oh and no. She, went, she immediately went, thank you so, so, so much. Like how a did lot you of know, dude? Come on. So this, is how, this is how I knew. I didn't know. I didn't even know how to read a polygraph. I don't find the tool to be that effective for lie detection. That's a whole nother discussion. But like if the CIA is using it, very effective. If just random strangers are measuring physiological arousal, it's a very complicated thing to understand, like just like it is the poker table. What I did notice is when they asked that question, the guy in the front got a little weird. He just oh, started he just started looking you like you read the just, context. You read the so like, you read okay. the table. I read the context and I didn't even know. So I threw out the information oh, and she verified. Oh my it. goodness. So, the that reason why outrageous. I like that story is in a large way, that is probably like the highest, most effective modality for reading behavior. It's not you're reading reactions and you're throwing out information to verify it or not. But most of the time, you need to have the conviction to ask someone. Like people will say like, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. It doesn't look like everything's fine. Like you look like you're a mess. Like what's going on? And you're like, Getting to the core of someone's behavior is the skill to, that makes people cooperate and collaborate better. Not sitting there and guessing what someone's experience is. So people have all these examples in like the media where they know what actually happened. They've established ground truth. So they know that this person has killed somebody or they know this person has cheated or they know this. And then they're able to spin or create a narrative of behavior that supports that. Right. Dude. So, oh, for sure. Yes. And you're like, oh, like Lance Armstrong is covering his genitals because he feels like, but, and it sounds when you get somebody that's perceived to be an quote unquote expert and they start citing research or studies or whatever, people really believe it. And the reality is, if you want to verify something like that, what you want to do is reproduce a sample or a data set of that person, you know, in interactions over the course of the last five years. And look for trends. And that's how I knew, like with the poker study, it was the same way. Like a lot of top poker players that I work with, like, oh, you see that? Like he bit his lip. So I know I'm like, it's not verifiable because we have every single instance on camera. So like, that's the difference. So Blake, I got to ask, and the listeners I'm sure would want to know, what is meaningful? Meaningful is the process of understanding when somebody's incongruent and then understanding why. We don't look for why. We just look for incongruence. You could connect with people a lot more if it's like, this person looks a little bit off. And instead of making the deck all like, they're weird, or I don't like this. Whenever you have those things, like somebody's weird, I don't like this person. It's like warning signs to start to understand why. Because usually it's just their behavior is not in alignment with your like bell curve distribution of perception. So therefore you are making this claim about them. It's so interesting because when you were talking about that book where they're talking about how the brain is really looking for efficiency and of course survival and prediction, but efficiency, one of the things that we've found is that when we're trying to 
exercise our maximum physical capacities, when we are saying something that's not true, we are weaker. And the brain, I'm imagining, is using more of its RAM space because, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's one of the, so there's like, in some of the classic deception research, it's called cognitive overload. Sure. Like the fact that lying is a more cognitively overloading task than telling the truth. You have to juggle all these things so that we're supposed to see some indications. Like some people talk about like blink rate and lying as a facet of cognitive overload. So one of the things that happens is when you're cognitively overloaded, your blink rate tends to decrease. And then when you have some sort of emotional response or arousal, you sometimes see an increase. So what they've tried to look at in deception studies of looking at somebody, looking at blink rate, while the person's lying, there's a drop in blink rate. And when they're done with it, there's an increase. We've seen certain things like that at the poker table as well. Like I verified it in poker samples, but lying is the most, I mean, it's it, like lying is deep, really deep. It's like you could lie because you care about someone. You could not know that you're lying. It's not this just simple binary of like, my name is Blake and I'm 37. Aha, I'm not 37, I'm 36. Like that's such a nuanced lie. I've spoken to people that work for like three-letter agencies and study deception and stuff within the context of like, yeah, if you find that this person's lying, they're going to be, you know, counterterrorism unit or something like that. Like there's a huge impact here. So of course we're going to be able to measure physiological arousal on a polygraph in a different way than we would is if somebody's part of some sort of random study. This is why sometimes the practitioners and the academics, they don't align because they're looking at behavior in completely different contexts. For example, like I once had this guy, he was like the head of security at Bloomingdale's. Yes. And I found his insights to deception to be really quite profound and quite interesting because he spends his entire day trying to determine if people are lying or not, like seeing if employees are stealing from the company. So usually what he does is he has footage that shows that this person's stealing and then they do this interview to try to get them to verify it. So he has that ground truth sort of statement. In your day-to-day life, you don't have that. Like, so for example, like one of the most useful tools, this is where it gets complicated, right? Like I'll tell someone, I'll do this to people every once in a while where I'll like talk to like an academic or whatever and I'll make up a study. I'll be like Zoomberg 2000. Do you read that Zoomberg 2009 study that I found that, 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 right? So that's what most people say, right? Like I did not. But some people that want to be perceived a certain way might say, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like I've read that study and it, it's, they're not a bad person. They want to be perceived and they're willing to sacrifice their integrity or whatever to be liked. So like, how do you reconcile that with, oh my God, that person's a liar, And so many people are so, they won't even realize how much they lie and how much they have self-deception. It's just so hard to navigate. So let's get into that for a second. Because of course, when you asked me that question, there was a part of me that had to override the desire to be right. Exactly. And of course, to tell you the truth, which is where I would prefer to go. I've actually found that lying is extremely burdensome. You're talking about cognitive overload and the, the cognitive dissonance associated with telling a lie. It's really... It's a mm-hmm. hard thing to do for most of us if we are not high on psychopathy levels. Let's talk for a moment about the burdens associated with lying. I would imagine there's a higher level of, for example, alcohol abuse because it's heavy to walk around with a lie all day, all the time. And obviously there's small lies that we tell, like checking out of Walgreens and somebody says, hey, how are you doing today? And I'm having a relatively crappy day. And I say, great, because of course they're not asking me 
a truthful question, let alone would I give a truthful answer? Well, how much time have you got? Well, I'll tell you all about my day. I'm not obviously not going to do that also for the sake of efficiency, but it would not be safe nor culturally appropriate. But it's a lie of sorts that doesn't really take very much away from me if I'm walking out of Walgreens. But a lie is, uh, could actually disrupt sleep, could make it harder to look at somebody who you care about if you're holding that burdensome lie. And I'm wondering what you know about yeah. lying in its various gradations as well as its effects on our psyches. So lying in how it's perceived is a binary. Either you're lying or you're not lying. You're lying or you're telling the truth. But I think it looks a lot more complicated from the person actually lying. So like things like psychopathy aside, like most people are not going to be psychopaths. They're normal people. And what normal people are likely to do is lie. And someone's like, how do you lie and sleep at night? Well, hmm. they lie with an incredible amount of contextual justification for why they're doing what they're doing. And that's how they do it, right? So for example, like uh, somebody's stealing from their office and they know stealing is wrong, but deep down inside, they really believe that they're not being paid enough for what they're doing. So when you actually ask this person, do they feel any emotion or guilt or anything around? No, because they, they need more money. Exactly. Yeah. It's I'm doing and, it for a, I'm doing it for something for a greater good. And if you look at a lot of like con people and a lot of like swindlers, wherever you want to call them, I think the path starts out with a road of good intentions. I think a lot of people don't think that they're doing wrong until they realize much later that they are doing wrong. The path to hell was paved with, I forget yep. what. Oh, yes, good intentions. Yeah, that's uh, very nice. That's the quote. I love that quote. Uh, that is awesome. Dude, I could be with you all day. I mean, your wife, who will be on my podcast at some point soon, is phenomenal as well. And before I get to my last question, is there something I should have asked but haven't yet asked? That's a really good question. No, I don't know. All um, right, then I'm going to ask you yeah. my final awesome question. And that, that is this. If you could confer on everyone one insight or skill that would vastly improve their lives, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would affect them personally and perhaps even society at large just based on your immense research or life experience? One skill. If I had to or choose insight. one skill, it would probably be cognitive empathy. So empathy is this weird term that's overused in a lot of contexts. So there's like emotional empathy. Usually when people talk about empathy, they're saying being able to understand the potential emotion or state of someone else. What I find to be way more useful is cognitive empathy, which is understanding the reason why that person potentially has that emotion or state. Totally. I feel that the more decision trees of cognitive empathy you develop in life, the more you'll be able to understand, connect, manipulate. I mean, like it goes both ways. It is an incredible tool. And sometimes that comes from asking people like really why, like why do they perceive things the way that they see and, and not making these quick judgments about people. Great. I, I mean, I'm a, obviously a huge fan of emotional empathy and cognitive empathy, but what a great soundbite on the importance of cognitive empathy. Blake, I just, I mean, so enjoying geeking out to you and with you. And I'm excited to see what you bring to the field because I just know that you're going to be constantly offering more and more tapas and perhaps even main courses over the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Course of time. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. 
Thank you so much for having me, man. I love this. Right on, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.